All right, everybody, we have a little bit of a different episode this week, different format, different style. Jack and I are actually at a conference with a group of state leaders. And um, in this conversation, we covered a variety of stories. We talked about breaches, stories from experience and from the trenches. We offer some words of wisdoms, but most importantly, we wanted to hear what it sounded like. So this is part one of three, and we hope you enjoy it. Want me to take it? Yep. So as some of you may or may not know, uh, New Harbor does um, a lot of security management. We learn a lot from a lot of different states all over the place, right? And the challenges associated with this particular style of organization, they're really hard, right? I mean, you guys are seeing it every day, but we see it, and we see it across multiple states from a combination of the openness that the constituencies demand, right, followed by the fact that sometimes because of statutory reasons, organizations tend to be more siloed. Collaboration is an effort, right? It requires leadership to get this stuff to be a communication across people. And what you find out really early on in security is that that is what security tends to be. We learn from one another. We learn from one another the best ways to manage things. As vendors put their products together, they learn from one another about what the new requirements are. And probably most importantly, you know, we as a service provider across multiple different kinds of organizations, hundreds of them, or you uh, across your own organizations, left and right, uh, within the state or even with external partners outside the state, you realize that you're learning about the new threats fast as possible by those communications. You're learning about the best practices, people to know, sites to watch, threats to watch out for, because you're collaborating with one another. And so in these conversations, um, it came up that we could have this conversation with all of you so that we could hear from you sort of what's going on. Some of you may or may not be familiar uh, with the fact that Justin and I do a podcast uh, on cybersecurity. It's uh, in the top 100 in the U.S. and the U.K. And we decided maybe the best way to answer some of the questions we saw, some of the topics, was to sort of go through this with you, right? To have this conversation with you, answer more questions that come up, but really just be resources for you. And this is just about talking about security. And we want to bring to you maybe some exposure outside of your day-to-day -day you may not have. And also the fact that we spend a lot of our time researching this. Justin's been doing it for decades. I've been doing it for decades. And so we like to think that maybe we've learned some things that could help other people not have to eat as much dirt as we've had to eat uh, over the years. So does that work for you? Works for me. And I would just add, too, at this point, like, we've worked with people all across the country in state government. So we've heard a lot of stories. We've seen a lot of stuff just across the country. So... Uh, we can share some of those stories as well. A, a lot of lessons learned, for sure. But it's just like, what's the reality, right? What's the reality and the scope and the impact of the threats we typically end up talking about? And so Justin and I were like, hmm, let's think a little bit about it. You know, ordinarily, if you're going to do a session on cybersecurity, you basically Google breach and you'll find something that happened in the last 24 hours and there'll be something that's pretty interesting, right? But does anyone here live in Florence, Alabama or know where it is? All right, some people know where it is. So Florence got hit with a hack a couple of years ago, and it drove down the town's internal email systems. For those of you not familiar with scenic Florence, there's about 40,000 residents, and they lost email. And it cost them $250,000. They actually paid the freight, 250 grand to get email to work again, because otherwise they would have had no communications internally. So the way we look at it is, 
That's six bucks per resident of the town of Florence to retrieve just the email service that existed between the folks who were servicing the needs of the town. Why do we bring it up? Because around 60 or 70% of successful ransomware attacks that we're reading about over the last 12 months are happening against state and local organizations. It's a combination of the fact that the attackers have realized they're more likely to pay and also because the resources, because they're so publicly exposed, because that's the nature of what public servants do, it provides a greater threat surface. So if you're curious at all, like, does it really matter? Do these things really happen? Or is this just like security product vendors trying to sell us and make us scared, you know, for some reason? It really does happen. And the thrust, and I'm going to let Justin talk, but the thrust of Justin's presentation this morning was that these things can be addressed. It's nothing to be afraid of, right? This is no harder than any of the many challenges you're going to solve day to day. It just requires a different mindset and maybe a little bit of a different kind of collaboration. The piece I would kind of pull back on a little bit <clears throat> so we can kind of revisit the comment was um, I think some of the challenges that we've seen across the country, ransomware attacks on government, it's almost an unfair situation. Like, just by the nature of state government and how you have to operate for your constituents requires that you be public and requires that you publish things like your private counterparts don't, right? Like a super, super good example is email addresses, right? Like it's super easy to get access to everybody's email address, right? Some cases like it's posted publicly and I can tell you that those email addresses at scale are super easy to harvest, right? Whether you're scraping them or you're downloading them or however you get them. And we're seeing more and more people are starting to pull some of those things down because they realize it's a threat vector and they want potential attackers to work a little bit harder to get some of those addresses. But, but still, like, think about it. If you have someone who can download your email directory, right? Like, it's not hard to find. And they blast out an email with 20,000 email addresses, they just need one person to click it under the right context. And then it's like they got their foothold. Whether it's state government or others, it's like that's how we're seeing the majority. I don't, I don't want to say all, but most are being perpetuated that way. Tech Target had a report that came out maybe six months or a year ago that showed for state workers, 67% in 2020 had been the target of a phishing attack and 71% have been a target in 2021. So they're seeing it grow, but it's already more than a super majority of the folks, I think, and I didn't even thought of it until you said it, because that's exactly what happens, right? Because the, so many of the addresses are available publicly because the public is being served. That's probably why they're seeing a higher rate of efficiency. Yeah, let's take that one step further. Like you think about the landscape in state government, like that's only ransomware. Right. Right, and that's only email, but like think about all the applications, like we have to push out to the edge because your citizens require it in order for you to deliver services. Your private counterparts aren't doing that. Like, they don't have to do that. But, like, you deliver an important service to the citizens of the state and requires, like, you put your stuff out there. And, like, we all see, like, the vulnerabilities that get announced, whether it's Log4j or, like, whatever it is, right? And to think all of those thousands and thousands of applications that you've pushed out to the edge, it's reasonable to think at any point of any day there's going to be an elevated number of vulnerabilities that are present. And the number of stories, like I could tell you about footholds that were established through state government just because of a vulnerable foothold that maybe people knew about it, maybe they didn't. In all cases, like 
give a foothold in that, you know, a prospective threat actor could then turn and pivot on to do, do more damage. The story we gave this morning was a project that we were working on internally. So a big part of our business is defending, a big part of our business is attacking. So we run large-scale attack simulations for state governments, large enterprises. And so I can't remember the name of the bill from the feds, but it was like the Infrastructure Improvement Act. It was where the feds granted money to states to then turn around and improve their cybersecurity posture for their critical infrastructure. So there was one state in mind that we were working with and they had to start off like, they're like, hey, we're, you're not going to test our stuff. Like, go test them over here. That'd be a good really place to kind of test this. And so we said, okay, we'll do that. So how we approached it, we said, let's take it through the lens of a black box test. Conversely to a white box test, so a black box test is something like we know nothing about them other than what we can get off the internet. Anything that's publicly available, right? A white box is the opposite. Like we know everything about all of the infrastructure and then we can launch our attacks from there. The two test efforts are very, very different. But in this case, that's to say we want you to see what a potential threat actor would be or nefarious actor would be and what information a public person could have about the organization and what could you do with it. So long story short, within 15 minutes, we had a foothold into their infrastructure. So we figured out where their address blocks are. We could figure out which addresses were susceptible and present on the internet. And we went out to publicly available domains that frankly just publish responsive critical infrastructure. And so we're like 15 minutes in. So we went back to this and said, hey, like, listen, you got us in the clock for the week, right? We're like an hour into the first day. Like what else do you want to do? And I said, okay, see what else you can get to. So, by the way, that's never like a free pass you want to give to someone running attack simulations. So our group then started to do further exploring. So now we keep testing and we collect more, we collect more. So anyway, this was, timing was about two weeks before their elections. So like, yeah, it's, it's a problem, perhaps bigger than like what we've tested here for infrastructure. Like, yeah. and, and I think it's a good example, right? Because it typifies why your jobs are harder than it is for private sector people in a lot of different ways. A private sector company like LastPass has a breach into their systems, source code is stolen. They're like, dudes, mea culpa. Right? We'll do our very best to make sure this doesn't hurt you. We see no evidence of badness, but it'll be okay. And maybe the stock goes like this for 15 minutes or something, but then it's pretty much over. As opposed to losing faith in the institutions that keep us from devolving into anarchy. It's a very different gig. And I thought it was interesting, right, for us to have that conversation about it, because one of the questions was, you know, what is the reality of this and how does it apply to us yeah. as state agencies responsible for this, this broad span of authority? It's sort of like the baseline, right, for this conversation, why we hope you're interested in, in what we're talking about. But there are also other components that we understand you want to hear a little bit more, like who are the people that are causing us these problems? What is the reality of the ecosystem that supports the attack infrastructure, right, that supports the expansion of threat and threat intel? And Justin does a lot of work in the advanced threat community, right, so I want it to be great to hear more of that. Generically, right, think about it this way. The generation of an attack community is an organic thing. It's like almost like a biological organism. There was a guy at Ohio State back in 1995 named Steve Romick, who basically, it was early in the internet, so it was easier to do these things, but there was a hacker group that had infested Ohio State. And instead of throwing them off, he just watched them for years, right? He watched them. 
And there was this repeated pattern, biological pattern, where what would happen was the original group got together and they broke into a bunch of stuff, stole a bunch of stuff, looked around. They weren't like stealing financial stuff. He wasn't allowing that, but they were planning their attacks and training one another on techniques. So basically they do this for a while, execute some attacks, until the senior most person, the leader, turned 25-ish, 25-ish. Because at that point in time, that person recognized, at least in those days, this is a bad idea, I could get arrested, and they left. And then two people would pop up, because it tended to be two people beneath the top person, and then it would separate. And you would have two different communities growing up with different threats, and on and on and on and on. And that's 30 years ago. So the attack community grows pretty organically. One of the things that's changed with the internet and social media being as pervasive as it is, and the darknet being as well instrumented as it is, is that the, the, there's now a ton of information sharing. In one of my last communications with one of the federal agencies, uh, and this was a number of years ago, they had discovered that there had been a change in the ecosystem for hacking tools, where particularly in Eastern Europe, there were occasions where state-sponsored attack development was finished and then handed to criminal elements. Because what they were looking for was sort of what Justin just described, which is the disruptive effect of cyber attacks on the confidence of target countries. And a lot of these, if you looked at them, a lot of the code of these tools was written in such a way it wouldn't execute inside the countries of their origin. And so these sponsors of this style of activity found a community that was happy to execute on it. So before for my time at New Harbor, one of the things that I had the opportunity to work on was a binary decisioning model for e-commerce fraud. So I'm going to kind of pull this around to what Jack was talking about. So basically, think of the world that, like e-commerce, like all the stuff you buy on Amazon, all the stuff you buy on, you know, Zappa, whatever the place. I just realized, like, Amazon owns everything. <laughs> think about all the stuff that you buy online. And today, people steal goods from online. They use stolen credit cards, and they'll order goods from online to be shipped to you know, a drop location, direct to themselves, whatever the scheme is. There's actually a lot of schemes behind it. But the idea is you use something stolen from someone to get goods that are of value. Like that's the, that's the exchange. And so the organization that we're working with had losses in the millions and millions of dollars. Their stuff was super popular. And they're also like super fast to ship. One of the challenges that they had was in the course of shipping out their goods, they never had enough time to figure out, is this a stolen credit card? Is this an affairs transaction? Should we actually fulfill the transaction? In an analog world, that was a three-step process. It was either you ship it, you hold it, hold it for manual review, or you deny it. But that doesn't reflect the world that we were in at the time. This is probably about 10 years ago. So the model that was kind of adopted in this case was for uh, digital goods, right? So we said the digital goods industry is already trying to solve this issue because you look at the world like iTunes as an example, or you buy a movie on whatever, you some, something you stream, you buy, buy something on your phone. That organization that you buy from has to make the decision instantaneously whether you are a good transaction, if you will, or not. If they say yes and you're you're a nefarious actor, they've already lost the digital content that they can't get back. Conversely, like if you're a good person, good transaction, they want to give it to you right now, immediately, because it gives credibility to their service. So anyway, 
the program that ended up being written was uh, the first binary decisioning model for e-commerce fraud transactions, presented it in Las Vegas, and is something that Apple uses today for all of their iTunes and their Apple Store. But in the course of doing all that testing, this was over the course of two or three years, what we saw was exactly what Jack talked about. It was saying there was this testing that occurred. And, and why I kind of offer is because it's relevant and I see it today. And like what you are all defending is the idea of fraud or security or advanced threat analytics. It's all made possible through testing and iterations and saying there's someone probing networks. There's someone probing applications to see if this thing works. Does it have this vulnerability? Does this attack work? And if no, then you retool and then you try it a different way or you move to a different application or you just keep moving on. But if it does work, you now have a foothold and now you can try the next thing. Did that work? No. Try it again. Try it again. The next thing you know, you have this almost like agile scrum security exploit thing that's happening, right? That's being developed by people with no, no certifications. Like we, like we are super proud of our certifications and how credentialed we are and what our four-year degrees are and like how much higher ed we have. But I can tell you that the 15-year-old in Eastern Europe like, does not give a crap about any certifications, and they are not trying to get them themselves. Right? The only thing they care about is taking something that is of value that they can turn around and buy food for their family. Like that, that's where they're at. Yeah, and, and they're passionate hobbyists sometimes. Right? There are criminal enterprises as well, but recognize that criminal enterprises recruit from the passionate hobbyist. You take someone who would rather build code, learn about code, than build you know, structures in Minecraft, it's the same thing. They can spend hours and hours and hours learning how to do it, but then it's something that they can ultimately monetize. And they don't need the structure or rigor or delay that happens through formal education. They, that attacker population just continues to grow. And, you know, the team at New Harbor, we, we do a lot of work over time with colleges, just in particularly trying to improve the quality of cybersecurity training programs and the availability of training for things like certifications, job roles, changes, etc., but really, that's like this. Compare that to the growth in the hobbyist. That goes like this, right? And we're already 600,000 or a million behind on the number of people who can fill these jobs. So those attackers we talked about earlier, they're seeing more and more space created by an increasing lack of folks who understand how to better secure the ever-increasing amount of technology that we as organizations put out to help constituents and others access the services they want to access from us. You know, the, the thing I, I always come back to, we see it internally on our side, is blue teaming and defending is really, really hard because you have to get it right 100% of the time. Anybody who's attacking just has to get it right one time, right? And I kind of mentioned that earlier, but um, the rate at which we're producing the next generation of cyber warriors that are qualified to run a very long race is paling in comparison to the people that are skilled and talented in breaking stuff, you know? And I couple that with the fact is, you know, we kind of talked about why I believe like states are kind of on the back foot as far as defending goes, like all the stuff you have to make public, you have to make available. There's also this constant rub, there's this constant pressure for what you all do day in and day out of creating services that are available for your constituents versus securing them, right? And that's, that's a high pressure configuration because I know of many cases where if you have a state service that needs to be available or a state application that needs to be available, 
and you have citizens that are using it and it's not available, they are going to be on your back asking when it's available, when they can have their service. And if it's not, it gets escalated up to the state senators and other people who are of political positions and saying, hey, like your platform is this or you're supposed to be looking out for a state, but these services aren't available. It's my legal right to have these things available. But at the same time, it's like those things need to be available, but they also need to be secure. And if you think about what Jack was just talking about, I'm saying if we have the attacker population that's growing like this and we have, you know, our blue teams that are kind of growing like this, like we're actually never catching up. Right. So it's a tough spot in, in 2022. Thanks for listening. As always, if you're looking for excellent cybersecurity help, just looking for general advice or how-tos, you can find us at info at newharborsecurity.com and we'll catch you on the next episode.